0: Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and in this special episode I'll be looking at some of the creatures that live within our soil. You may have already heard our previous episode when I discussed with my colleagues Chris and Anton how to get that perfect soil for your plants to thrive. As any organic grower knows, getting your plant roots into good soil will help to feed, get moisture and build up a strong pest-resilient specimen. And this time of year, before you start sowing or growing, is the perfect time to think about that brown stuff beneath our boots. So if you haven't already tuned in to our January episode, I urge you to do so. But in this little bonus recording, I wanted to look at two soil creatures in particular. Earthworms, for instance. We all recognise them, and they're an excellent indicator of how good your soil is. But how much do we actually know about them? I also wanted to look at a creature which is hated by many, but seen by few. It's the mole. But before we start, I'd just like to say thank you to our sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils and balms. I love the way they call themselves the vitamin company with an organic heart. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health stores across the UK. So to find out more, visit viridiannutrition.com. That's viridian with a V hyphen nutrition dot com. So back to the mole. I admit to a personal fascination of this elusive creature, not least because my lawn shows exactly where he's been. And who best to find out more about a mole's habits and lifestyle than a mole catcher? So I hunted around and found Jeff Nichols, who has spent a lifetime studying and catching these earth-living mammals. And if, like me, your knowledge of mole comes only from reading Wind in the Willows, then listen on. Well, Jeff. Tell us about this little creature. And it is a little creature. I think most of us have is in our heads that a mole is quite a large animal, but it's not, is it?
1: No, it's not. It's, it's all the damage you see in your gardens, your fields, your paddocks, is all done by a creature that can sit in the palm of your hand. When you look, it's capable of. It's a Herculean task, and you have to admire them and respect them for what the good the creature they are.
0: And that's their great big front paws, isn't it? That's doing all the earth moving.
1: Yeah, it is. They're, they're four limbs. And that's where all the, the power and the movement is. They, they've got six fingers. They They have basically an extra finger. It's a small bone that just comes out just prior to the thumb. And it's it's connected to their thumb by a a piece of skin. So it makes it like a a spade. So basically, they've got five pickaxes and and a spade on each side. And they, they definitely do know how to use them.
0: Tell me about how they're adapted to live underground.
1: Oh, this, this is the remarkable thing about them. They've been around for millions of years. Nature doesn't get it wrong. She's provided them with everything they need to survive in such a, an environment. They live in what we call a hypercapnic environment. They'll have a low level of oxygen and a high level of carbon dioxide. So they, they change the atmosphere in their tunnels themselves. Or they produce a, a bicarbonate in their body, which basically is like a buffer. I don't want to go into too technical, but it enables them to control the levels of carbon dioxide in their body and they pass it in their urine as carbonic acid and that helps to buffer the carbon dioxide build up in the tunnels as well
0: wow and the fact that they're in the dark all the time is it true that they are blind
1: oh no no sadly not um i, I film moles in the ground and they have what we call them um, scotopic vision or dim light vision and they're not blind they can see perfectly well in their own environments they don't like the light it's because of their eyes that their eyes are one millimetre across, but they have a lot more rods than cones in their eyes, which enables them to, to see in dim light conditions.
0: And they have other means of sensing how they move and where they move.
1: Yes, they have a thing. It's called a kinesthetic sense. Basically, it's an imprinted pattern of memory. Because they are living in a permanently dark world, they use memory. to. They know the length of the tunnel. They know every turn in the tunnel and every junction in the tunnel. And most of the time, the moles have actually constructed these tunnels. If they haven't constructed those tunnels, they have an imprinted pattern of memory. So when they pass through another territory, they know the tunnels, they learn it. And they use another thing called proprioception, which is the body's ability to understand movement and awareness of space. If you were to walk into a a darkened room and you reach out, you just touch the light switch. It's because you remember where the light switch is. What the brain does is I need the light switching on. Please repeat the signals that I've previously given you to put the light on. Um, and that's the basic way of understanding how the mole finds its way around in its environment.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. So if I see a sequence of molehills going across my lawn, is that one mole or is that a family of moles that are creating them?
1: It's normally one mole. The moles don't like each other. They live solitary lives. And what happens is late February, March, the moles will go through a chemical change. The male mole will fill with testosterone and he'll leave his territory. And he will go off in search of a female. This is when gardeners can get a row of molehills going across their lawn, through their allotment, across the paddocks in a straight line. What we used to call them the tongues of love every single mole territory everywhere in the united kingdom must link by a tunnel if it didn't they wouldn't exist as a species because i'm going to break another myth here and moles can't fly i'm afraid <laughs> that, that is a myth that i can break now moles cannot fly they tunnel everywhere they tunnel to, to find their food and they tunnel to find their mates so, so it's like we have a road system overground they have a tunnel
0: system yes, underground
1: exactly and again the mole is dictated by one thing it's just food he needs to find two-thirds of his own body weight in food every day every so day he has to, every single day it's got a huge calorific burn and what um, do they
0: eat jeff
1: well they used to be called insectivores um as the name would suggest they are insects but that's been changed i've got to say this right now uliplotiflurs and they feed on all sorts of bugs and grubs that they can find but obviously as everyone will understand that their their favorite food is the good old earthworm
0: who's also tunneling in the earth <laughs> yes <laughs> do you know how they find the worms is it by smell or by touch
1: oh no it's this by vibration sense um On their face uh, and their rear feet and their tail, they've got special hairs called vibrissine. They're very stiff hairs and they detect vibrations. So the mole feels the vibrations of things moving in its environment. A mole cannot afford to dig for no reason. So it won't just come tunneling across your garden and through your vegetable plot unless there's something there as a reward. And that reward has to be food.
0: So when I see a sequence of molehills, this is the mole seeking new territory. Is that right?
1: Again, it depends on the time of the year. If it's the springtime, single male mole looking for a female, tongues of love. If you suddenly get a rush of molehills in different areas, now the mole is dictated by its need for food. Moles don't just have one kitchen. They have various kitchens, which they, they go to as and when the soil and the weather is dictating to them. So if the ground is, is dry... They'll go to a damper area where they'll find their food. So a mole can have two, three, four, five kitchens, depending on the carrying capacity of the habitat where he's chosen to live. Uh And the mole's ability to dig in good soil, 18 feet an hour, 100 foot a day, And the ability to move at two and a half miles an hour through the tunnels it doesn't take him long to get from one kitchen to another so those mole hills are just the waste that he can't compact he has to put it somewhere we dig a hole we put the soil somewhere we have to put it on the top the same as he does
0: i was looking online for mole repellers and the best thing seemed to me was something that vibrates it's a stick that you put in the ground and it causes vibrations do you think those actually work?
1: um (laughs) vibrations to a mole means two things it either means a predator or food they have very few predators their main predator is us so if the vibrations continue and no predator comes then it's obviously the opposite is food so creating vibrations is telling the mole that there's food there in fact encourage the mole to come to the area
0: Okay, so presumably you would have to use them in conjunction with a trap then if you wanted to catch them all.
1: No, and I don't like the word trap to be truthful. I prefer device because um, when people think of the word trap, they think it is to deceive and ensnare. It's not not nice. We're trying to remove the mole. And as a mole catcher, I catch the moles and then that is in the device that restrains them. You can't use something that's going to encourage the mole to the area and then put a device in to catch it. It's it's a difficult one because people say, "Oh, if you can attract them, surely you can repel them." It's not quite that simple. Um, You have to find the right tunnel to place any device, and that location is different wherever you go. You have to understand how the mole is feeling that environment. You have to put together the overall picture before you even consider controlling the mole.
0: Okay, so this is a skill, and you've got a lifetime of this skill behind you. I understand
1: (laughs) that is a misspent (laughs) youth. What, watching have moles
0: more... or hunting for
1: moles? <laughs> um, watching moles and hunting moles is yes that's the easiest way to put it um when I was young I had a choice I could pick potatoes or I could catch moles I was very fortunate because I was told if you want to catch a mole there's some up in the graveyard you can go and catch them up there and we'll give you four shillings for the mole and I was sort of sent out with a bent stick and a piece of string and uh, told to catch the moles in the old way I was never allowed to have any metal devices because they said well you might hurt yourself and um, oh you're not going to catch one anyway it, I think it's like a rag to a bull really um so I sat in the graveyard and I I learned from my mistakes and and you that's the finest way to learn when you're dealing with nature is learn by your mistakes, take the time to study them, understand the, their world and, and you can't go far wrong.
0: So from what I've heard, Jeff, I'm loving these moles that are living underground, apart from the unsightly mounds. The mole is actually not doing any damage to your growing area at all, is he really?
1: No, no, he's just a nuisance. Moles do share their tunnels. They share their tunnels with mice um, and voles. These are the creatures that eat the roots of your plants and your vegetables. It's not the mole. The mole does not eat them. That's the, the rodents that um, share the tunnels with him. He's not a pest. He's a nuisance. If he didn't throw up the soil, then we wouldn't know he was there. It's that simple.
0: Also, from a gardener's point of view, that soil is actually very handy. Now I've scooped it up and used it as really nicely sifted loam, which I then use as a base for a potting mix to sow my seeds into. So actually the mole's doing me a favour.
1: The mole is it's, it's not a child's book of doctrine join the dots up either it bears no relation to what's going on underneath the ground the volume of soil that you see on the surface can dictate the depth that the mole is working at so the bigger The the mole
0: hill the deeper the tunnel yes exactly so tell me how how do you deal with them humanely
1: okay um humanely is the real word um you must respect this little creature uh if you place something in the ground to catch the mole alive, you are responsible for the welfare of that animal. I would never, ever take a mole unnecessarily. They are a wonderful creature. They're an amazing creature. I have this saying that I always say to people, below the ground, no one hears them scream. And if we were to hear them scream, then we wouldn't control them. I would always say to people, if you've got a mole in your garden, to think twice before you actually make the call or go to the shop, because quite often the mole that you've got is not staying you have to understand its reasons for being there and is there something you can do to change that reason for it being there so sometimes you can just stand back and just look and and watch and understand this amazing little creature
0: and it's part of the bigger picture isn't it that our garden should be full of life different animals birds insects whatever it seems very unfair that the mole gets penalised.
1: He doesn't mean us harm. He doesn't cause us any health risks, doesn't spread any diseases or things to us. It's just the, the fact that he's a nuisance and just decides to throw up a bit of soil. And from a gardener's point of view, that is, as we said, a fantastic product to, to put on other parts of the garden.
0: Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that. That's OK. And now I'm continuing my tour underground, by looking at earthworms. I'm joined by Anthony Roach, who is joining us from the Earthworm Society of Britain. Hello Anthony.
2: Hello Sarah.
0: When I come across worms in my own soil, I've noticed that there are sometimes the small curly ones and sometimes there are large longer ones. That's very untechnical. I'm guessing that you can tell me those are different varieties.
2: That's right. You will find uh, a number of varieties of earthworms in your garden. Broadly, we group them based on where they are in the soil. So your small, curly ones could be one of um, two types of earthworm. One of these are called epigeics. These are called surface feeding earthworms. So these live and feed within the uh, leaf litter. So you often find them on, on, the, on the surface under things like plant pots. And then you've got uh, another type which are called endojaic. So these occur within the sort of top I'd say 30 centimetres of the soil. Are um, those
0: the large, longer ones?
2: No, those are not the large, longer ones. Ah. So the largest and the longest of the earthworms, we call those the deep burrowers or deep living earthworms. And, and the, the scientific name is anisic earthworms. OK, so these are the largest. Uh, Lumbricus terrestris is one of the most well-known of those. They feed on decaying organic matter, or, but leaf litter as well. And they, they come up... Um, at night to feed on leaves and they drag them into these long vertical burrows. They're the ones that make the casts on the surface as well. So uh, people who run golf courses or bowling greens perhaps aren't huge fans of these guys, but uh, they're very important because they, they turn that leaf litter into tiny fragments which go back into the soil and that allows those nutrients to be taken up by, you know, other organisms in the soil.
0: I could say that urms have a dual role really for the gardener, couldn't you? One is that they're helping break up the soil. They're creating tunnels and air spaces which allow air and moisture to move through.
2: And they can take stale air from below and they bring fresh air above through this burrowing action down into their burrows
0: but also they're breaking down the compost and the, the leaf litter to make it accessible to the microbes and ultimately to the plants.
2: Exactly. Often these casts are five times richer in nitrogen and seven times richer in, in, in phosphates that uh, are needed by plants. Yeah. So
0: we should be picking up the worm casts.
2: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. They're very valuable um, to, the, to the soil itself.
0: This ties in so beautifully with my conversation before about moles who would consider... as pests. But in fact, similar sort of thing, they're aerating the soil beneath, but they're also indicators that there is a good rich soil life because a mole can't live without eating the worms, the beetles or whatever. And it's Mm. the same with the worms, isn't it? They're indicators that you've got a really healthy soil.
2: And the key, I think, uh, certainly for a lot of earthworms is uh, plenty of organic matter. So if you're if you're improving the soil with um, compost or with manure, that certainly does help to maintain the earthworms that you've got.
0: Anthony, if I haven't got worms in my soil, how do I bring them in?
2: OK, so certainly at the society, this is a common question that we get. I would ask the question, why is it you don't have earthworms? OK, is there something around your soil? Is the soil degraded? Um, what, what is the pH of the soil? You know, is it very exposed? Is it compacted? Uh, is it sandy? Because if it's sandy with low organic material, that is a soil that, you know, earthworms don't really like. And in terms of bringing earthworms in, if you're bringing in an e6 so these deep burrowers, they're not absolutely because they are going to aerate the soil for you. But it's important that they are local. and They're not from abroad. Okay, so go to a worm farm that's near you if you want to buy earthworms. And but that being said, there's no guarantee that they will stay where they are. And actually, Lumbricus terrestris, apparently, it can potentially move uh, at least up to 20 meters in a single night. So Wow. But you do need do need to provide that organic material. You can order earthworms online. Um, they may not come from this country. Um, they may come from abroad and it's very important that they are species that are native to the UK. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it sounds a bit of a risky business. What I'm thinking of is someone who's created a garden, maybe created some raised beds, got specific areas in which they want to grow their flowers and their vegetables. Mm. There, the chances are, especially if it's a new built house with very poor soil, that they're not going to have earthworms there. So you think it's okay to go online and to buy some so long as you check the... There are British earthworms.
2: I think an, an alternative this, to this would be um, developing a, a compost heap and organic material because earthworms will be attracted to areas with high organic material and where there are compost heaps, particularly species like Azenia fetida. Um, and dendrobina venita will find your compost compost bins however obviously if you're wanting borders and beds that's different i think what i would say is i think you need to think really carefully about the overall habitat and and not just focusing on earthworms but uh, creating a space that is attractive to uh, as many soil organisms and insects as possible because that diversity will help to increase the quality of of the um of the soil that you 've got
0: these are all things that are very dear to an organic gardener 's heart, definitely, and it 's something that Chris and I often say in our podcasts. How does rain affect worms there 's been
2: a lot of discussion over the years about about rain and, and the impact on earthworms, and why is it that r- the earthworms come up to the surface during a rainstorm and there are a number of competing ideas about this some believe that um, the idea is that it mimics the vibrations of moles digging through the soil so in order to avoid being eaten on hearing these vibrations they come to the surface key to earthworms as you know is that they breathe through their skin and they need moist conditions in in order to survive so they they can dry out and actually rainwater allows earthworms to move uh, and and disperse and that enables them to colonize new areas
0: if you touch a worm, it's moist in its to feel, isn't it?
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Help me understand the actual process, almost the anatomy of the worm. It eats at one end, it will be eating the organic matter that you mentioned, the compost and the leaf mold and whatever. And then it passes through the worm, does it, and gets excreted at the tail end?
2: Yes, but the key thing to know is that they have microbes in their guts. And that means that relationship with those enzymes actually chemically changes um, the, the soil material or the leaf litter material that comes out the other end. Mm. Um, so through that process, they essentially are creating you know, new soil.
0: Let's get back to some of the myths. It's not true that you can cut the end off a worm and it'll grow again, is it?
2: So it's interesting because I, you know, when I used to get this question, I used to say, absolutely not. You know, if you cut a worm in half, you know, it's a dead worm. Yeah. However, having said that, it depends on where you cut the worm and it depends on the actual earthworm as well so dave Coulson, in his book he's aware of a a, a scientist called uh ge gates and he spent about 40 years of his life uh studying earthworms in particular doing these awful, awful experiments where he was dismembering worms mm. um and actually based on his research we now know that the lumbricus terrestris um will grow back its head but apparently not its tail that's um,
0: the big big the big worm big that goes earthworm, yeah. The yeah. common
2: lobworm, yeah, that's yeah. right. So in, in the case of the brandling worm, okay, it can regenerate, potentially regenerate both parts. So if you cut it between segments 20 and 24 from the head ends, you can actually, it will regenerate both both ends. So This is um, so
0: precise. These yeah. are the little red striped worms that you find in That's your That's
2: right, yeah. But it's new to me that Lumbricus terrestris can regrow its head. I'm inclined
0: um, to think just to be safe rather than sorry, I wouldn't go around cutting up earthworms. So Anthony, part of your work is to encourage us gardeners to understand more about earthworms. And the Earthworm Society itself has set up a National Earthworm Recording Scheme, which you'd like us to get involved in. Tell us a little bit more about it.
2: Yeah, so the National Earthworm Recording Scheme is something that that we set up because we recognise that um, earthworms were under-recorded nationally. And so Mm -hmm. the the aim of it is to collate as many earthworm records across the British Isles as possible and undertake sampling of areas for earthworms. Once we have a, a better understanding of what earthworms are where, then we, and, and we understand their habitat preferences, it's much easier then to conserve species.
0: If our listeners want to join this recording scheme, then the best thing to do is to look at the Earthworm Society of Britain website and they'll find out information there.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Sounds fantastic. Anthony, thank you so much. I feel I've learnt a lot more about earthworms Not least the difference between the small curly ones and the large longer ones. Thank you so much for spending time talking about.
2: Oh, that's okay. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me today.
0: Next month, Chris gets a brush with royalty as he meets Debs Goodenough, gardener to the Prince of Wales and committed organic grower. In the meantime, why not tag us into your gardening updates on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you have any questions for the podcast postbag, do get in touch. It's quite simple, at gardenorganicuk, UK. Or an old-fashioned email on podcast at gardenorganic.org.uk. Until then, thanks for listening and bye for now.